Uh, hey folks, uh, we are starting a little late tonight, and we got some echo going on over here. There we go. We're starting a little late tonight. Uh, we had some technical issues because, well, computers and the Sci-Fi for Me staff. Um, we may have just gone black on you here, so. <laughs> uh, okay, so there's camera. And... Right, so, um, all right, and maybe we're back? Okay. <laughs> uh, intern Mindy, uh, who has survived all of our attempts to do her in, uh, we decided to uh, throw her into the technical side of things tonight, and this may be what actually destroys her. Hi, folks, I'm Timothy Harvey. This is The Tim Harvey Show. And um, technical issues aside, uh, it's good to talk to you guys tonight. Um, do want to touch on a couple of things. You know, a few weeks ago when we started, oh, this is Olaf, if you can see the cat. Um, Olaf has decided this chair and my lap are now his. He's claimed them for his very own. Yay! Um, so, I like cats, though. So, um, <clears throat> a few weeks ago, uh, you know, we started talking about some of the, the unfortunate sexual harassment stuff. I really did not want to turn this into a weekly thing. But the world is going to, um, kind of seems to want to make it that, and hopefully we can, we can take a step away from this. Uh, but, of course, in between last week and this week, um, uh, the Weinstein company basically fired Weinstein. Um, and, of course, over at Screen Junkies um, and Honest Trailers, Andy Senor got fired. He was, of course, one of the founders of the company uh, for the same thing. And, of course, they covered a lot of genre films. So, so many of their honest trailer things have been genre pictures. Um, and so, consequently, <clears throat> it does have an impact. And, of course, uh, we're seeing this likely to be the beginning of a lot of things unfolding out in Hollywood. Um, and it's about time. Uh, we joke. We, we just joked about it on Zompocalypse Now this week. We just joked about the casting couch. Um, and Curtis is very pretty, so, you know, he ends up on the casting couch, right? And we joke about that sort of thing. Um, but it's also a very, very real and very serious thing. It's part of the culture of the entertainment industry forever. Um, it's not just entertainment, obviously. Um, it's, it's business, it's politics, it's religion, unfortunately. There's all these different things where this sort of stuff is part, of, part and parcel of people in power abusing that power. And like so many other things involving um, sexual dynamics in, the, in, in this regard, it is about power. And <clears throat> if I talk about this a lot, um, I've had friends who've been raped. I've had you know friends who've been sexually harassed. It's very personal to me. So that's I don't want to turn this into the what the, the show isn't supposed to be about culture broadly, um, you know genre culture and that sort of thing. Sure, but um, this stuff is going to keep popping up, and it's, I think it's going to be uh, maybe it rips the lid off this, and we can end up with a better quality of environment for people. Uh, when I started doing independent film, uh, I moved to Kansas City in 2005 and started directing, writing films and directing films. And one of the things I did not want to do was be one of those directors. And there were a few in town. Um, in 2005, it was not as easy. The technology wasn't as easily accessible. We were shooting all to tape and standard definition stuff and you didn't have, your editing systems cost thousands of bucks. And it was hard to get stuff out into the film festivals. It's a lot easier now. A lot great opportunity for independent filmmakers, 
a lot of crap, admittedly, but there's a lot of good stuff coming out too. Um, and if you're young and want to get involved with this, or middle-aged and want to get involved with this, the opportunity is there. And it wasn't broadly um, until fairly recently. Uh, so even here in Kansas City, in what is not a terribly huge market, there were people who were casting films based on the idea that, you know, They'd be directing the film and starring in the film, and they'd get to you know make out with the with the pretty actress they've hired to play the female lead. Um, and you don't want to be that guy. And just on the independent level, you don't want to be that guy. It's certainly when millions of dollars and people's lives and careers are at stake, it's not going to end well. So we're I'm sure we'll see a lot more of this. Ben Affleck is uh, had several people come forward recently in the last few days. As a matter of fact, um, so you know Warner Brothers may have to recast Batman. This stuff does kill careers. And hopefully, um, it will lead to a a better environment. Um, you know, we've seen the culture's changed a lot, and women are in a much better position now to make this stuff stop happening, um, or at least be less of a secret in the culture and the environment. Um, so here's hoping. Emma Thompson had a great thing that uh, interview today with the BBC. Um, where she was quite certain that this is only the tip of the iceberg. So that's unfortunate, but also, you know, the potential for, for a much better environment for your sisters or your daughters or your moms or your cousins or any woman in your life uh, who wants to be part of, um, you know, the acting world or the producing world or the directing world or any of the aspects of Hollywood. Hopefully we'll see more opportunities for them that don't involve <sighs> really terrible people. Um, so, fingers crossed. Anyway. Uh, on a more, much lighter note, um, uh, I do want to point out that uh, uh, every now and again, someone gets an immediate comeuppance for this sort of behavior. On Saturday, October 7th, Jeopardy! Uh, featured the following item. Charlton Heston's wardrobe in 1954's Secret of the Incas inspired the clothes worn by this adventurer char adventurous character 27 years later. And, of course, Jeopardy! is... They give you the, the answer, but you must give the, the question, the, in the, for, the answer in the form of a question. Um, and uh, who is Indiana Jones was the answer, right? Um, well, someone <laughs> decided they would go on social media and say that, no, no, um, it was actually 1952's The Greatest Show on Earth. And... Uh, Costume designer Deborah Landis said no, the question was exactly right because I provided it. And she explained that, the, the, that Heston wore the same gear in The Greatest Show, but that Raiders was based almost frame for frame on Secret of the Incas. Well, this person sat there and said, well, Greatest Show came out in 1952. Incas came out in 1954. Spielberg acknowledged he was inspired by Greatest Show in numerous interviews. Really? Landis scoffed. In interviews? I was there. He and I watched Incas together in the empty theater. Surely you've got to be kidding. Well, the reason she was so certain is because uh, Deborah Landis designed the costumes for Indiana Jones. So, generally speaking, it's not a good idea to get into a fight with the person who actually did the job. Um, her son uh, decided to uh, make that very, very public. So, uh, every now and again, you get to immediately put people in their place when they're, when they're wrong. Um, but anyway, uh, so I did want to touch on something from last week as well. So um, there is a great thing about this kind of show. Now, obviously, if you're watching this on um, if you're watching this on Twitch, you can give us instant feedback into the to the chat room. 
um, and we love that kind of feedback. When it's working, I had trouble with it getting it to work last week. So, but uh, and if you can't do that, obviously in the form of comments, and I want your comments. Um, I'm. This is in many ways an opinion show, and therefore my opinion is my opinion, which means I am happy to be corrected or confronted or challenged. These are all good things, right? It's supposed to be a dialogue and a discussion. And one of the things that made, I think, H2O or Apocalypse Now or any of the other shows that we do where we got more than one person on camera, I'm all alone, um, is the fact that you get to have that kind of bounce back, right? So, very, very pleased, actually, to get a very nice, in-depth comment um, for uh, my comments last week. And one of the things that I did last week was I kind of kind of leveled a little bit of a personal attack on James Cameron, and I got called on it. Uh, John Popham, who is uh, a longtime listener to a lot of our podcasts, a longtime reader of our site, and a writer in his own right, um, always gives great feedback. And he asked me about the 52% uh, number that we were talking about for, for female fans uh, on Twitter, and, and my, one of my rare opportunities to actually get on Twitter and, and actually interact with people. We, we talked about it, but he also had a really nice comment, um, which he looked at the James Cameron Wonder Woman comments, and it's a fairly lengthy comment. I encourage you to go read it. But one of the things he said was, you know, eh, Falcon, it was a bit of a personal attack on my part for Cameron, and he's right. I'll admit it. Uh, it was a little unfair to James Cameron. That said, um, he also raised a very, very good point about the difference between superhero films and science fiction films. And while there is a great deal of crossover, and we kind of look at superhero films as under the umbrella of the science fiction, science fantasy, um, they are very different things. But also, there's a big cultural difference in terms of when the Terminator films were made and when Wonder Woman was made. And, sorry, uh, if, you, if you're watching this and you keep seeing me scratch my face, it's because somebody's fur keeps wafting up into my... <laughs> Such an adorable little cat. Hi. Uh, but so there's, there, yeah, there's, there's a difference. Um, one of the things that made films like Wonder Woman and the Black Widow film that maybe, God willing, we will get someday, or any of the other potential, you know, Captain Marvel or any of these other female-led superhero films, is that the audience is really ready for it. That's one of the reasons they wanted Wonder, uh, Wonder Woman so bad, but they wanted Black Widow before it so bad. Uh, why so many fans got excited about Agent Carter on TV. Um, when you have these strong female characters and the audience is there and ready, and this, this real growth of the high-profile female fan and the very vocal female fan has made it really possible for that to be something where the studios can realistically look at the money people who are still squawking about, you know, you know Helen Slater's Supergirl, um, again, Helen Slater did a fine job in a film that she was better than the film allowed her to be in. Um, but So people are ready for that, right? When the Terminator films came out, one thing you have to remember, I think, is while Sarah Connor really is a very fine character and a great example of a very strong female character who does have a really strong uh, growth arc, and that's one of the things that John uh, pointed out, in his comment is that she does have a very, very powerful story arc in terms of going from being this damsel in distress into this woman who is not going to let anyone rescue her. She's not going to need it, right? Um, the interesting thing there, of course, is that 
Cameron was able to do that in a film where the female lead wasn't the box office draw. Remember, of course, these were Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. The Terminator films were part of the 80s, 90s action hero genre, right? They were science fiction films, but Arnie was an action hero, you know? Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, you know, um, all these, these guys who were these, you know, masculine action heroes. And so what was interesting to me, looking back at this now, and of course I didn't really recognize it so much then, I was much younger, uh, is the fact that in a way he almost, you know, right under their noses, you know, in a film that has Arnie's name on, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in big block letters, um, you know, the films that are billed about the Terminator, is that you have this very strong female lead and a very strong story arc for that character, which unfortunately, uh, once the second film was done, and I think for a lot of fans, the series went off the rails, only worse and worse and worse. Now I guess Cameron's coming back into it, um, so we'll see what happens with that. Uh, he really liked the last Terminator film, eh, at least according to those press stuff. So, you know, but there's something that, there's a very different time in terms of what we were getting out of our movies and in terms of the vocal fan base. Terminator films, for all the fact that I'm sure they had you know, millions of female fans, were marketed towards guys. Films like Wonder Woman, of course, were marketed um, to everybody. Uh, and I think that it, the response to women was much more vocal in the sense that it was something that they, those fans were ready for it. And of course, like I said, we had the, black, the potential of a Black Widow film and these other strong female characters that we've come to almost expect now, uh, and rightfully so. Um, but when, when, when Cameron was doing the Terminator films, when you were having Sarah Connor become the character that, that she really is, a very strong female character, um, it was a different time. And I think that he really did something special there that we do have to acknowledge. And however I might have interpreted his reaction to this, um, his feelings about Wonder Woman, you know, you cannot ignore the fact that the man did something really, really strong and powerful with Linda Hamilton in those films. And so again, thank you, John. I appreciate the feedback, and I appreciate also, you know, like I said, you disagree with me, let me know. I want to hear about it. All right. Um, so, the main topic tonight I have, uh, which kind of ties into some degree in a lot of what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, again, um, possibly a little bit of females in science fiction, um, the impact and, and how we how they're treated. So Blade Runner 2049 came out, and I have not seen it yet, so no spoilers. Ha ha. Um, Minnie told me, told me all about it. It's all her fault. I know how everything is. She's terrible that way. She did not. She did not do that at all. So uh, she's doing very well over there. Nothing's blown up yet. Nothing's caught on fire. Um, we haven't we haven't broken her yet. <laughs> so. So, the, but the film came out, and one of the things I noticed, I had several friends on Facebook uh, whose reaction to the reaction to the excitement that a lot of people had for this film, and, and the enthusiasm they had for you know people talking about how much they loved the first Blade Runner film, and their reaction, and there was quite a few people who I saw doing this, their reaction was, I didn't like Blade Runner. And it was like this support group where they're like, it's okay, you don't have to like it. And I didn't like it either. And, 
And yet I also saw some people going, what? How can you not like Blade Runner? It's Blade Runner! It's this defining science fiction film. It has all these things and, and the, you know, Rutger Hauer's speech at the end and Harrison Ford and it's modern film noir and all these things. And to some degree, I completely get it. I love the film. I love, um, I was a fan of the film when it was in the theater. I did not hate the voiceover. I much prefer the later cuts without it. The director's cut and the final cut, um, I both really enjoy. Uh, but I also enjoy the one with the voiceover. But I'm a film noir guy. And one of the things about Blade Runner uh, was that it was very much influenced by film noir. The story structure is very film noir. Um, you know, you've got your broken down detective. Oh, spoiler alert for a 35-year-old movie, by the way. Um, but you've got a broken down detective, you know, kind of an ex-cop, which is the standard in noir. You've got the femme fatale, um, the innocent damaged femme fatale with Rachel, you've got the evil, you know, the evil industrialist with Tyrell, um, you've got, you know, the really, the mayor image character with Roy Batty, you've got all these very interesting characters, you know, you've got the, you've got the, very much the femme fatale in, in kind of split in between uh, Joanna Lumley and, da and Daryl Hannah's characters, and it's got that visual texture that's very film noir. Um, and, of course, it's an incredibly influential film. Now, let's talk about these two things separately. First of all, the film noir aspects. I'm a huge film noir fan. I, I love the thing. I've made several film noir shorts. I intend to make more. What I love about film noir, aside from the visual aesthetic, you know, those sharp angles, those, those powerful shadows, the, very, the visual style, and, of course, black and white can look really cool. Um, and it's influenced the visual aesthetic for a lot of films. But one of the things I like the most about it is the kinds of stories they tell. Film noir characters are broken. They are flawed. The men in film noir are usually very damaged. The women in film noir are usually very dangerous. Uh, the world they live in is a corrupt, dirty, um, damaged world. There is very rarely do film noir films end well for anybody, you know. But they're also very subversive, and there's been quite a few books and articles written about this over there. I encourage you to go out and take a look at this stuff. And, and if you haven't, if if film noir is not a, a genre you've explored, I encourage you to do so. Some very interesting stuff and very influential films have come out of there. Uh, Big Sleep. Um, you know, Casablanca isn't really a film noir film, but it's it's related. Uh, Farewell, My Lovely. Uh, the Postman Always Rings Twice. So many different things were, were part of the film noir larger genre. Uh, that kind of storytelling. They were often very, very subversive in the way that they allowed, at a time when women did not have a lot of power, to basically have stories told where women were taking that power for themselves. It usually ended poorly for them, but they were still taking it for themselves. They were often played as the villain, but if you were an audience member, you were often rooting for these bad girls. And the men didn't make out any better. It was, you know, the entire, everybody in film noir is doomed. Um, there, of course, there are happy endings in a film noir, but still, overall, um, it was a very, it's a very, I would say unhappy genre um, because everybody's doomed. There's this, there's this overall sense of decay 
and flawed people. I find that sort of storytelling really interesting. When done well, Raymond Chandler, uh, of course, you know, one of the great uh, detective novels, uh, Dashiell Hammett, you know, these guys basically created some of the, ba the, the literary versions of, the f of these famous film noir characters. And, gosh, so many other great, great writers and, and filmmakers. Um, but this kind of storytelling, because there's so many grays in them, when you make a film like Blade Runner, which is all about grays, one of the big distinctions that you hear from critics, spoiler, relatively spoiler-free, I guess, about the new Blade Runner is that it doesn't have the grayness and ambiguity in terms of the characters and the right and wrong aspects of the story that you got in you know, the original Blade Runner versus Blade Runner 2049. And the reason that I think a lot of people really enjoyed the first Blade Runner um, is because there's that grayness, that ambiguity about who the good guys are. You can argue very strongly that Decker is not a good guy. He is not a nice person. He is emotionally stunted. His relationship with Rachel is really wrong. Um, he's kind of a failure at his job. The only two characters he actually manages to take down on his own are two women that he shoots in the back. Not, you know, and he's supposedly one of the most successful Blade Runners. Tells you that the quality control of the LAPD might be a little lax in the world of Blade Runner. Uh, but nonetheless, he's a very interesting hero because he is so broken. He is so flawed. And he's, of course, he's played by Harrison Ford, which has a built-in audience right there. But he's very much the idea of that film noir private detective, alcoholic, um, can't really do much of anything. <laughs> he sort of stumbles through things. Um, Rachel is definitely not the femme fatale. Um, she's the romantic interest. But, he, you know, again, that relationship is really kind of... of it's clearly one-sided. And that's one of the big complaints uh, for a lot of people watching the film is that that relationship is clearly abusive. Decker basically badgers her into the relationship um, and forces her into the situation. And this, you know, this are these are legitimate reasons for people not to like the film or to be upset about it. It also moves very slowly. It's got a very even pace punctuated by moments of violence. And if you're not into that kind of pacing, and it's, you know, again, this is a film that was made in the 80s. The editing style that we are getting used to now, unfortunately, is so cut, 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 cut. And that really wasn't the case 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And so if you're looking for a film that is as fast-paced as you can get uh, now, you're not going to find that in Blade Runner. Um, but it is an incredibly influential film. Now, that film kind of defined what dystopian futures were going to look like. You know, there's so many, good lord, the, the Shadowrun games and books were massively inspired by Blade Runner. Those worlds where the corporations have taken over, where, you know, the, whether it's pollution, or how, however, however mankind has managed to destroy the planet, um, the, you know, the corporation stepped in. You wouldn't have Resident Evil on the horror side of things if you didn't have the Tyrell Corporation. Because Umbrella is basically, you know, the genetic engineering version, uh, you know, the, the mad science version, I guess, of the Tyrell Corporation. 
you know, these, these conglomerate corporations that are ruling the world and basically taking away the, the agency of, of general humanity. You know, the idea of having um, these, this crapsack future where there's these little glimmers of hope, so much of that visual style, the, you know, what we think that world is going to look like, you know, came out of Blade Runner. The idea of a uh, heavily Eastern society, in the case of Blade Runner, it was Japan. Uh, at the time, there was a lot of expectation that Japanese culture was going to kind of overwhelm ours. There was a lot of fear of that. Um, and then, what, 20 years later, gosh, not even 20 years later, you would get uh, Firefly, and it was, the, it was Chinese culture was the influence. That sort of stuff clearly came out of Blade Runner. So much of this stuff has been influenced by Blade Runner. And that can also be a problem with watching Blade Runner now. If you, have, if you didn't watch it when it was in theaters, or you watched it much later in life, uh, or you know, you're younger and you came to it later, you've seen so much of what Blade Runner kind of pioneered in feature films and our ideas of the future. You've seen that already. You've seen it in a lot of other sources. And so it doesn't feel as inspired or as fresh or as original as it felt then. All these different things put together, you know, and and the score, you know, the Vangelis score was very iconic, but again, we've heard things like it since. What is such a big uh, excitement point or joy point for a lot of fans of the original film is how much the new film evokes the same visuals even though we've stepped way beyond uh, where Blade Runner was in technology. Uh, talked about you know the the difficulty of trying to match the visual aesthetic of the original Star Trek series in anything that, that's set before it. You run into the same thing with something like Blade Runner which had such an iconic visual sense and you look at what technology has passed, gone past it. I mean, it's clearly in an alternate, alternate reality because of this, the, the time that it takes place in. Um, but you end up with, you know, if you're going to stick with that visual aesthetic, um, you're going to end up doing things that are, uh, for fans of the original film, they're going to really appreciate the, those visual touches for new fans coming in or new potential fans coming in. They're not necessarily going to have that same kind of impact. So it's an interesting kind of conundrum for uh, somebody coming in who wasn't there when it was new, uh, wasn't the right age to watch it then, or come, came into it later and found a something that didn't feel terribly original. Um, Jason and I have talked several times on, uh, on H2O, you know, the gross mishandling of the advertising of John Carter. Um, and one of the things that, you know, we said over and over again is that you, it needed, they needed to basically talk about how that film inspired, that the, the original John Carter stories inspired so many of the things that we now think of as standard tropes in superhero stories or in a lot of science fiction stories. You know, the John Carter stories did that first. Uh, you know, but if you don't market it that way, then people are going to look at it and go, well, this is awfully derivative. Well, you know, no, it actually walked those, those footsteps, the very first people to do it. Same thing with Blade Runner. It has that kind of influence on science fiction visually, thematically, 
uh, in terms of you know so many different films that it's been inspired have been inspired by it, so many different stories. It can feel not terribly original. But like any other film story or literature, you know, great novel or things like that, that is massively influential, um, it also, just because you do something first, you can have an amazing impact on the culture of whatever it is you do, you're doing. It doesn't mean it's going to age terribly well. Now, like I said, I love the first Blade Runner film, but I understand how some people just don't see it aging well. A million years ago, my ex-wife and I sat down and watched 2001. Now, I love 2001. Again, classic of science fiction. Hugely influential on how we uh, envisioned our future. You know, this uh, groundbreaking in terms of its visuals, in terms of its scope of storytelling, in terms of the visual texture it was doing, and, and the, the psychedelic kind of, uh, you know, that's out there visuals that really kind of challenged you to think about the story. And, of course, also uh, the amazing music that went with it. Of course, uh, the whole generation of science fiction fans discovered classical music suddenly. Um, the problem is, is that 2001 crawls. It is not a fast-paced film, and it's not meant to be. Um, this is... It has a specific pace and tone, and in much the same way that 2000, and, uh, much the same way that Blade Runner, the most interesting characters are the, are the synthetic people. Uh, 2001, the most interesting character is the machine. Is is how uh, your human characters are all very flat and restrained and very professional. You know, these are astronauts, and they're very professional, and this is what. The future is going to be, we are serious people doing serious things. And the madness of how is what causes them to have reactions, right? So, as influential as that film is, if you, again, are a modern fan looking at modern pacing and modern storytelling, and when I say modern, I mean like the last 20, 30 years, um, it feels really, really slow. Now, you can appreciate that like I do, or you can find it very, very dull. Now, uh, 2010, the sequel, uh, much faster paced, much more of a dramatic story. Uh, the novel itself is a much faster paced novel. Um, and that can really, you know, I, my ex-wife really, really liked that film much better than 2001. But it's also a film that lacks much of the scale and sense of wonder that 2001 had. So, you know, it's a trade-off. But you saw the, see the same things in literature as well. If you thought slogging through Moby Dick was a miserable experience, or went and saw Les Miserables on Broadway, or, you know, whatever the touring shows, and then went back and read the Victor Hugo novel with all the politics parts still, not, still in there, not cut out. You can buy it in two different ways. You can buy it with the the you know, unabridged version, which is 90% politics and 10% story, or you can, you know, bar, it's like, this book is really short, um, and find that the book is just really hard to read. And one of the things that you notice, I was a book dealer for 15 years, and one of the things you notice is that the, many of the great books, the great classics of literature, are really tough to read. And why they, the reason they're classics 
is not always because they're great reads. Some of them are. But some of them are great because they changed how literature was looked at. It changed how storytelling was done. And films like Blade Runner 2001 or Star Wars, I had an encounter not too long ago with someone who said they watched the original Star Wars and didn't see what the fuss was. Well, you know what? I completely understand that. As a film, it is very simplistic. As a story, it's very simplistic. Um, there's real benefits to that in storytelling a lot of times. It may not be, you know, even, even if you're a fan of science fiction or science fantasy, it may not be a film that engages you. In 1977, it engaged people because they hadn't seen anything like that before. Not since, well, I mean, they had, but it would, you had to go back to the serials of the 1940s and 50s, and that was very different kinds of storytelling, too. So, as much as some people may sit there and go, how can you not like Blade Runner? What's wrong with you? You do have to understand that even, big, even science fiction fans, even uh, fans of Harrison Ford, even people who like the new Blade Runner may find the first film just not appealing to them in the same way that it did to us if you're a first-generation Blade Runner fan or second-generation or wherever it is you came in. If you love that movie, you know, there's plenty of people who out there legitimately have legitimate reasons to not love that film. And it's okay. Um, you know, it's... <sighs> we get, as fans, we can end up with a very protective state of mind for our particular franchises and the things we love. Uh, you know, the infamous... God, the infamous Star Wars-Star Trek rivalry, which lasted for, you know... I guess it's still going on. Is it still going on? I don't even know. Um, because it always seemed like a dumb thing to me, because I was a fan of both. And they're different kinds of storytelling. I think that one of the things that upset a lot of people... Anyway, I can go on for hours. But the reality is is that there's some... You know, I'm happy to see Blade Runner out, uh, a new a sequel out. I'm looking forward to seeing it myself. And uh, hopefully we'll have a lot more really fantastic science fiction coming out over the next several months, several years, and into the future. Thank you for listening, folks. Uh, always a pleasure to have you guys listen to me here on the Tim Harvey Show. We will see you next week. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2017 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio.